Okay, I think we're going to get started. I'm, um, I'm really pleased to introduce Lenore Manderson, who's from our partner university at Monash. And she's going to be talking about some work she's done in Zimbabwe. And, um, it's actually Lenore, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, it's actually um, really based on field research that one of my doctoral students was doing, and we've done a fair bit of writing and analysis around this and related questions, which has led to an evolving interest in global warming, particularly um, as affected by Antarctic circulation, so in the southern hemisphere, as opposed to the political south which is both north and south. Um, but I want to thank actually firstly Jim and Meb for setting up this and from beginning to talk about the complexity of global warming and its impact on health ecosystems and social environments. And that is what I'm going to be developing with the beginning of a premise, which is that global warming is a matter of culture. Weather systems are part of a natural environment, but climate change is anthropogenic. And so remediation, redress, adaptation and resilience are all necessarily social and political. But while global warming and the associated destruction of biota and habitat, as we've seen, are incurring at increasing velocity, precipitating international political debate and action, questions of environmental management, adaptation to extreme events, and the unpredictability of weather and water supplies are by no means new. But the incremental effects of climate change are sharpened by globalisation and now add urgency to this field. And I'm very pleased that this is the focus of this afternoon's session. Environmental change and its effects on habitat are global, but the interactions of the physical and social environment play out in local contexts, and we need to understand these local events better. Africa is particularly vulnerable for economic, environmental and climate-related reasons, and it lacks or bits of Africa, I mean, I'm mindful of the comments this morning, so forgive me, lacks the institutionalised resilience or economic power to weather short-term crises or to set in place the infrastructures now to head off disaster downstream. Hence the importance of understanding international diplomacy in this context also. Um, I just want to put up a couple of um, graphs or diagrams which haven't been flipped up first. Um, these are um, diagrams of um, water supply and sanitation. Water supply on my left and um, sanitation on my right and the variability um, in different regions, which I think draws attention to places that are already vulnerable where extreme weather events um, affect groundwater, food security, animal health, human health, and um, human security, including the security um, in, in an immediate sense and the politics of security. Um, this side is the IPCC projection of the impact of climate change on cereal, cereal productivity, um, which almost um, removes the problem of maize um, and maize-related malaria just because of the um, effect it's, this is going to have on cropping. Um, that is not good news, that is of great concern. What I want to do is to discuss how unpredictable rainfall, poor crops and a web of national and global historical, economic, political and social factors in Zimbabwe, as my example, imploded to produce unprecedented crisis. I want to then describe these confluence circumstances 
as they affected the lives of residents in northeast Zimbabwe. So this is the area that I want to talk about where um, my colleague, friend and student Pauline Guatarisa undertook doctoral research with my support um, undertaken from June 2005 until July 2006. Pauline arrived in her hometown Mutari in Manika land, um, southeast of Harare as you see, the day after Operation Morambachvina. Um, had decimated the town, and I'll explain that for those of you who don't know that reference in a moment. But the humanitarian emergency that we were interested in was due also to drought, farming policy, land management, water management, sale of cash crops, and economic collapse. She, in fact, was concerned particularly with HIV AIDS, and therefore the impact of all of those things on HIV-affected households um, but I'm not actually going to really talk about HIV at all. I want to focus on everything else. So let me begin with a... Sorry. So this is... Um, and therefore much of her research was with households where there was a salary so that there was cash coming into the households, which, um, as almost everybody in this room will be aware, meant very little very quickly um, with the um, collapsing economy of Zimbabwe th through this time and subsequently, the politics of land. There's been a growing body of work on climate change in sub-Saharan Africa, highlighting regional vulnerability and the limited capacity for resilience in the face of unpredicted, unpredictable weather conditions. With global warming, dry savannas are especially projected as future food deficit areas due to temperature extremes, erratic rainfall and recurrent crop failure. But climate changes include flooding, drought, unseasonable rain, difficulties in adapting agricultural practice, changes in sea level, as we've just seen a picture of, disrupting coastal and riverine delta settlements. All such changes will affect water supply and food production, increase health risks from vector-borne and waterborne disease, as we've just heard, and increase temperature-related morbidity and mortality. In Zimbabwe, as elsewhere in the region, drought and food insecurity is in fact endemic, well documented by anthropologists um, in the first part of the 20th century. But it has been exacerbated with both colonial land um, and border legislation, the appropriation of land for commercial purposes, stripping people of the option of indigenous hazard management, such as moving to new pasture. At the time of Zimbabwe's independence in 1980, not so long ago, 6,000 white commercial farmers owned 15 million hectares of productive land, 8,000 small-scale farmers possessed 1.4 million hectares. The rest of the population, around about 700,000 people, worked as communal subsistence farmers on around 16 million hectares of land, most of it not as good in terms of agricultural productivity as the land held by commercial farmers. With independence under the leadership of Robert Mugabe and the um, Zimbabwe African National Union, land began to be acquired to resettle indigenous communities acquired from minority white farmers on a originally willing seller, willing buyer basis. Up until the mid-1980s, 
Notwithstanding these changes, Zimbabwe was the breadbasket of Southern Africa, and certainly I remember being there in the late 1980s in Harare and being struck by what looked like to be a vital economy and um, an easy place to be. But government-initiated land reform intended to redress imbalances in ownership of productive land precipitated crisis. Lack of foreign currency available to the government slowed land acquisition, and in the first decade of independence, that is 1980 to 90, only a small proportion of the targeted population had benefited. Thereafter, spontaneous invasions of commercial farms occurred. Concurrently, the diversification of maize for refinement at large-scale mills blocked the access of grain um, access to grain for small-scale millers, preventing people from choice of maize. In addition, the declining value of agricultural trade and international debt disadvantaged commercial farmers and impacted on prices to consumers for all imported foods. In 2000, the fast-track land reform program was introduced, resulting in the forced acquisition of around 90% of all commercial farms owned by white farmers, of which this photograph is of one. Some of this land, mostly relatively infertile rain-fed tracts, was allocated in small allotments to previously subsistence and small-scale farmers. Large areas of around 1,000 hectares were allocated to black commercial farmers for cash crops of maize, millet, sorghum, sunflower, barley, groundnuts and soybeans. The majority of these new farmers had previously practised small-scale or subsistence farming and had neither the requisite expertise of commercial agriculture nor the financial resources to meet establishment costs and recurrent expenses. Fertiliser and seed were unavailable or expensive. No provision was made for displaced farm workers because they had worked all their lives for white commercial farmers. It was assumed that they, that they had acquired security of tenure and would be hired. But new farmers given commercial land did not have the capacity to employ labour other than on a very temporary casual basis. There was violence as long established farmers were displaced, many farm workers were left destitute. The consequence was a significant decline in input of both cash and subsistence crops, increasing vulnerability and reducing foreign currency earnings. Climatic conditions exacerbated this already potent environment. Drought in the early 1980s, then in the early 1990s, then in 2000 to 2001 and 2002 to 2 to 3, affected both large-scale and small-scale farmers here in Zimbabwe, as indeed it did in Zambia and elsewhere in that part of, of um, southern Africa. While large commercial farms were irrigated, only 2% of subsistence farmers had access to irrigation and the associated technology. Unpredictable rainfall and periods of absolute drought cut production. Water shortages and unreliable access affected rural women especially, not only in relation to domestic use, that is water for cooking, for drinking, hygiene, household food gardens, but also because of their responsibility for livestock watering and brick moulding, where women were making bricks for extra cash or for household building purposes. 
alternative income opportunities in rural areas, including opportunities for farm labourers, shrank, affecting both men and women. The consequences were severe food shortages, affecting the economic and social well-being of farmers and their dependents, reduced foreign currency earnings and market instability. So food aid began to be provided in a more concerted way. For local rural populations, firstly, who were affected by the famine, which followed the drought and the crop failure of 2001-2 in Zimbabwe and Zambia, but food often arrived late and unreliably. Its distribution was erratic and there was a decline in donor responses. And this is really a period in which people begin to talk about donor fatigue. At the same time, however, there was a complication around food relief, both for Zimbabwe, but also for Zambia, where other colleagues of mine have worked at the same time, because much of the maize being offered was US-produced genetically modified maize, leading to a very bitter debate about health and the environmental dangers of GMO. Severe food shortages after the 2002 drought provoked further policy debates about the interactions of the food crisis and changing weather, about the food crisis and HIV-affected households especially, about conflicting demands between international and local NGOs in diverting resources from health services and or health promotion programs to food aid, and about the lack of strategies to support the re-establishment of livelihoods for the people hardest hit by the drought and by the economic collapse that was happening. Policy shifts due to structural adjustment, meanwhile, instituted in Zimbabwe and elsewhere by the IMF and the World Bank, and alterations to a regulation requiring household heads to reside locally, forced women to become more involved than previously in non-agricultural income earning activities, while men continued to work in commercial agriculture. With state-led emphasis on commercial monocropping and concentrated land ownership, subsistence production and missed farming consequently declined and agricultural communities became increasingly vulnerable. Deteriorating rural conditions due to drought, causing and exacerbated by growing unemployment on commercial farms, precipitated increased migration of individuals and families to urban and peri-urban areas in search of work. But, as Deborah Potts documents for Harare, rural migrants in the city were increasingly no better off economically than they would have been on farms. Peri-urban. The primary buffer against hunger in rural areas, with increasing monetization through the 20th century, has been cash remittances from family members in urban areas, so enabling rural householders to buy food and to buy seed to produce food. And increasingly with urbanization, as we know, there is an increased demand on rural food producers to produce food both for urban areas and for rural areas. Um, rather than for subsistence alone. But among rural wage workers and urban workers, household access to food depended increasingly on cash needs because of the drought and declines in food production. And the need for cash to purchase food at current market prices, with land and other resources to grow their own food, unreliable but still an important supplement. 
Increasingly, unemployment in urban areas stripped farmers of this support. At the same time, continued drought and declining production stripped individual urban households of food transfers from rural family areas um, to urban areas. And so a growing number of rural and urban householders both were dependent on purchased food. So the point I'm making is that in a situation where there is adequate food production in rural areas, cash flows one way, food flows the other way, and rural and urban interrelated households maintain some level of synergy. With drought and a decline in food production, rural households are unable to support urban households. A collapsed economy means that urban households can't send cash to support rural households and it spirals down. Food security in towns and cities requires, therefore, the commercial food production is of sufficient quantity to meet requirements for both populations or, alternatively, that the trade balance allows food to be imported, which is not the case for Zimbabwe, which does not produce a particularly um, large amount of goods for export. In Zimbabwe, recurrent drought led to further crop failures and low yields, and hence, of course, the attraction for any crop that has a high yield, because it is protective in the short term. Low yields produces further inadequate food for urban and rural populations. By the late 1990s, before the most recent droughts and food shortages, that is of the early 21st century, and before hyperinflation had eroded the purchasing power of the Zimbabwean currency until it was worth literally nothing at all, the poorest urban residents were already spending a substantial proportion of their total income on food. To an extent, the instability of food supplies for urban dwellers, both through market mechanisms and household food gifts, was protected by urban agriculture. Kitchen gardens allow householders to meet food needs or to supplement basic food items, protect the nutritional status of children and generate additional income. With deindustrialization, as began to happen with Mugabe, retrenchments and unemployment and with the removal of food subsidies as a component of structural adjustment, increasingly, both salaried and economically more vulnerable households depended on produce from household garden plots and open, undeveloped land to meet domestic food needs and sale and have, have extra food to sell. Where women could farm in home or open space gardens, they could contribute to household income and food security and so prevent family disintegration and reduce social alienation. Government intervention brought this to an end. As I noted, Pauline arrived in Mutari um, the day after Operation Murambachvina had been through or had begun in that town. This is the um, program which was known officially as Operation Restore Order. Literally, it translates as Operation Drive Out Trash or Drive Out Rubbish. And what happened was from May 2005, areas of informal housing, which is where there were household gardens and other informal income generating activities like small food stalls, were targeted by Mugabe to be cleaned up, that is, bulldozed out. Zimbabweans refer to this as the tsunami, um, with using the metaphor of the tsunami from um, the Indian Ocean that had been six months earlier. And they've used that really to define the speed with which 
uh, Mugabe and the bulldozers, swept through towns, knocking down informal settlements, and referring also to the effect it has had on people's um, uh, lives. In May, there was a warning that there would be a clean-up operation to stop illegal activity like living illegally or borrowing water um, or setting up stalls. The justifications for doing this included um, disorderly and chaotic urbanisation, including the health consequences of that, but also of curtailing money laundering, especially foreign currency dealings, which in fact subsequently increased, not decreased, preventing hoarding of consumer commodities like sugar, um, cooking oil and mealy meal, and reversing what was called environmental degradation through urban agriculture. In addition, there was, and particularly in Watari, a real problem around missing water due to the illegal diversion of the town water supply um, to informal settlements, but also for um, to water urban gardens. Um, so, a few days after this, um, the first announcement, Harare residents were told to leave and the um, illegal structures were demolished. But in other towns, there was no organisation. And basically, for those of you who didn't follow this, um, what happened was a pseudo-military operation where um, bulldozers and troops um, went through Harare, Bulawayo, Matari and other towns, bulldozing informal settlements. Vendors markets, flea markets, other informal premises and vegetable gardens were all bulldozed. Illegal structures, backyard shacks, which provided housing to poor dwellers, usually and or especially rural immigrants, were also smashed and burned so that the next effect was that people were displaced and moved into other houses. So in small single room shacks, you would often then get up to 17 people living, um, taking turns to sleep or lie down. The operation took place in June in the southern winter, leaving the majority of people whose houses were bulldozed without shelter. If that, and as I've noted, they often moved in with kin, causing overcrowding, creating pressure on finite cash resources and goods. By July um, 2005, around 375,000 people had been affected. People were told to return to rural homes, um, but many of the people who were affected were in fact second or third generation residents with no direct links to rural areas. Those who, who were displaced and had returned back to nothing because of what I've already described had been happening in rural areas as a result of changes in land tenure and drought. Operation Murambachvina had far-reaching consequences on the livelihoods and food security of urban dwellers. Salaried workers, already increasingly impoverished by crippling inflation, had limited opportunity to find alternative activities to generate extra cash. Participation in the informal economy, trade and gardening, and the, um, the decline of salaried work available increasingly stripped people of the, the ability not to have money for, for extra things, but essential food items. And you can read this, the comment of this for yourself. I mean, and in fact, at the time, because I was getting like um, daily text or any other way of communicating with Pauline, people, including she, would stand in the line to buy food and the price of the food would have gone up from when they took it off the shelf to when they went. And various people here who know that are nodding. So, 
by mid-2005, people were using almost all of their money, if they were getting any, and all income activity, generating activities, literally to buy the most basic subsistence food. And by destroying Operation Urban Gardens, they were stripped of any resilience. Livelihoods of urban dwellers had already deteriorated, um, but the oper Operation Murambachfina ex exacerbated the vulnerabilities of both urban and rural dwellers. With high unemployment in the formal sector, it was up to 80% at the time, and it probably still is, and lack of surplus food um, that was able to move from rural to urban areas, most people um, op opted for informal um, businesses, um, primarily going to Mozambique, which, was a, which is an interesting twist on what had been happening 15 years earlier when people from Mozambique nipped over to Zimbabwe for the same purposes. Householders sold goods from little makeshift kiosks that they then re-established. Women would set up stalls on footpaths and in car parks um, and so on, um, often with goods brought in, as I said, from cross-border trade. Um, crowding. In, in addition, most urban dwellers um, leased, um, who did have still freestanding shacks at the back um, leased that to immigrants who couldn't find alternative new accommodation. Money generated from rental from these shacks was used to augment income. People residing in this kind of housing um, resided in these housings as often as a temporary measure waiting for better accommodation, but that was really realised and people's health, of course, was compromised in this context. Immigrants from Mozambique faced a special difficulty finding housing. Rural to urban immigrants struggled to meet living costs. Inexpensive houses allowed them to live close to potential workplaces, but people would often walk um, uh, many kilometres per day in search of work in order to avoid any transport costs when there was enough petrol in order to provide them with transport. I'm describing implosion here. Um, demolition of housing affected landlords and tenants, so landlords lost their source of livelihood and again there is further implosion. With the operation, Zimbabwe, as I said, employment rate was 70% at least, it was around 50% um, in um, Mutari, 80%, um, sorry. As a result of the operation, around 30,000 vendors immediately lost their livelihood um, and their assets were largely confiscated by the police. Um, and I should actually say in brackets here that through this period, those who were doing well in Harare were, like elsewhere in the region, driving around in Hummers and doing very well. So it was not unilateral, um, imp unilaterally impacting. Um, but having said that, um, and, and relevant in fact to, to Susan's comment, um, university students, among others, stayed in university for the few who were able to, primarily through sex work. Um, and a number of papers now coming through on that. Um, all little food was that was available was um, usually held for anybody who was able to work in any productive capacity whatsoever, and for children. And women um, do appear to have been, not surprisingly, hardest hit in terms of the. Um, way in which um, food was being channelled. Um, this um, is now two years old and still there is a water crisis in Zimbabwe so that the impact of drought and the management of water and the infrastructure um, that is and governance of water remains an issue. 
What I now want to do is to quickly talk about HIV, food and nutrition, um, primarily because most of the households are vulnerable because there are a few households in Zimbabwe that are not affected by HIV. People who are on um, heart require increased nutrition and so again there were decisions being made about the, the diversion of food or the preferencing of who might eat depending on their health condition. And so there is a further cycle downwards of the accumulative effects of drought, famine, unemployment, the operation itself, prolonged interest and the breakdown of links between urban and rural. Now I'm not even going to read the rest, I just want to walk you through um, through this period, a whole lot of other things, um, structures began to um, decay. This is a city morgue with the bodies piled up, which is actually, having looked at Haiti there um, over the last few days, no longer a surprising photograph. Um, food aid policy itself highlighted inequalities and exacerbated them insofar as there was no flexibility to recognise the fact that people were um, people's incomes were worthless and the policy itself um, meant that food was directed to people not in paid employment. But when your paid employment is one quarter of a can of baked beans, then you're in serious trouble. So, um, flick that. Hence migration, which I'll skip over. This, this last slide here, I think, um, is interesting because in a way it picks up and echoes and summarises also the, the interplay of a range of factors that the previous two speakers also spoke of. So that agricultural systems, land use systems, urbanisation, water, energy production, social systems and a wider global processes including those that drive climate change all combine to make particular communities especially vulnerable. Um, in resource poor settings to summarise, the capriciousness of the weather has the capacity to tip countries, communities and householders into chaos. Zimbabwe was an extreme example, but not the only one. In Zimbabwe, a toxic mix of drought crop failure, injudicious agricultural trade and fiscal policies and the fallout from decolonisation all combined to produce famine and terror. But it is only an exception in terms of its timing. The circumstances are in place for recurrence throughout Africa and elsewhere. Projections highlight the need now for scientists to begin to plan for changes in agriculture um, and to begin to take steps now to slow the tra trajectory of change at the same time. And I'll leave it there, thank you, and I'm sorry I've gone over.